Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight's topic is surviving natural disasters with your horse. Well, what a summer. Um, back when we scheduled this event, we hadn't been through hurricanes and wildfires yet this year. But as we speak, smoke from the local wildfires in my area are heavy in the air. Thankfully, my office no longer smells like a campfire. However, if you step outside, the smoke can make it hard to breathe. My horses are coping with it, uh, but they've been depressed and they've had snotty noses and goopy eyes for weeks and I haven't been able to get much riding in. Meanwhile, horse owners in Texas, Florida, and the Caribbean are dealing with the aftermath of hurricanes Irma and Harvey. These events are good reminders of how important planning is when it comes to our horses in disaster. To help us out tonight, we're joined by Dr. Rebecca McConico of Louisiana Tech University. We are also expecting Dr. Eric Davis, who has been delayed, but we're hoping that he will be joining us uh, shortly. So until Dr. Davis gets here, we're going to go ahead uh, with Dr. McConico. So welcome, Dr. McConico. Uh, hello, everyone. Good evening. And um, I just want to have a huge wish out there for, and for speedy recovery for everyone dealing with the fire and the hurricane disasters and that we're sending heartfelt thoughts and, and prayers from Louisiana. Yeah. So let's start with your involvement with uh, natural disasters, veterinary care, and taking care of these horses and getting them evacuated during disasters. Where did your interest start and what has your work focused on? Um, well, the, the focus interest started probably right around 2000 when I made my way um, to back to LSU um, to work and uh, was uh, confronted with a tropical storm, Allison. It's actually very similar to how the Harvey storm went through. Um, a couple of years later, then we had Katrina, Rita, uh, Gustav Ike, we had Hurricane Isaac, the Gulf oil spill, last year's big flood. So it doesn't seem like things are getting um, any easier climate-wise for, for the population. Um, and it was such a, Katrina was such a disruptive situation for all of us. And it was a great opportunity at LSU with the support of the faculty and the deans there and um, the, the veterinary population there that we needed more training, we needed more involvement um, as veterinarians are looked upon as leaders in their own communities and disasters occur locally. You know, the team is not there waiting for them to happen. You're there locally with your own families, your own community. And, and uh, we just felt that this was really important. We integrated it into the curriculum at LSU. Uh, we merged it with uh, collaborations with other veterinary schools and and other groups, uh, national groups, local groups, and we've just kept it rolling and it seems to be very popular and um, been a really worthwhile thing to focus my career on. Okay. And did we maybe have Dr. Davis join us? Yeah, I'm back. Hi, hi, Dr. Hi, hi, Dr. Davis. This is Michelle. Um, we were just doing introductions. Dr. McConaughey was uh, telling everyone about her experience uh, dealing with natural disasters with horses. So you're from UC Davis. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your interest in in evacuation planning and natural disasters with our horses? Sure, sure. Uh, I had a, a former position with the Humane Society in the United States. 
and I was deployed to Katrina and some other national disasters that, that they were involved in. And then when I came to Davis, um, I went to work for uh, Dr. Madigan, John Madigan's uh, uh, International Animal Welfare uh, uh, Training Institute. And our mission is uh, training students, veterinarians, and first responders, uh, perhaps most importantly, in uh, tactical animal rescue and disaster preparedness. So that you know, that's kind of my background in the field. I suppose I had a uh, rather close encounter with it uh, this year with the uh, rains that we had in California. And at one point, we had our trailer hooked up and everything ready to evacuate because they're worried about the Orville Dam failing. So um, I can tell you that this can happen to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've already touched a little bit on the hurricanes and uh, wildfires that have been happening, but Dr. Davis, what other natural disasters, uh, you mentioned a, a dam and possible flooding, what other natural disasters should we be preparing with, with our horses, depending on our region? Uh, well, I think, you know, of course, here in California, we, uh, we do have earthquakes. And, um, that is the disaster for which you will have the, the, the least amount of opportunity to prepare. So um, basically having the sort of same things in place as far as um, food, shelter, water, that kind of thing, basic uh, uh, first aid, um, you know, at least here on the, on the west coast of the continent um, is, is, is probably something that we ought to be thinking about. Well, I want to give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be talking about uh, natural disasters in our horses for the next hour. We're going to start with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have questions that you'd like to ask live, and I know there's a lot of you out there, we've had a, a record registration for this event, um, or if you would like clarification on a response, you can go ahead and enter that in the chat window in front of you if you're listening via your computer. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. So let's go ahead and get started. And this first question is for both of you. And Dr. Davis, you can respond first, then, then Dr. McConaughey. But Roberta in Lexington, Kentucky wants to know, why should people donate cash instead of sending stuff to disaster zones? And I think this is a really important question because we're all watching what's happening in certain areas and, yeah. and wanting to help. So Dr. Davis, what are your recommendations? Well, since this was a huge problem uh, with the Katrina response, uh, yeah, I, I can certainly speak to this. Um, there's a couple of things that sending product ties. There's a couple of problems that that causes. One is is that it ties up uh, transportation because you have to haul the stuff in. Um, second of all, there tends to be a mismatch between what is donated and what is actually needed and then what happens is you start having large piles of um, supplies that get in the way of, of rescue and sheltering that that you then have to deal with and if some of, of those supplies are things like dog food or perhaps grain in the case, case of horses um, what you do is you promote a rodent problem very rapidly and so uh, just giving money is by far and away the best way to do it. Now, there's certainly things like hay and, and whatnot that, that might need to be 
uh, transported from a distant area, but that's best organized when the uh, agencies running the uh, response have money to pay for. And Dr. McConaughey, do you have anything to add and maybe some recommendations on different places where people can donate say, and, and know that their money is going to go to to the right places? Um, just a couple of things to add. I completely agree with um, Dr. Davis on that. Um, another mention on the aspect of food storage. So we know, you know, for sheltering, there needs to be food and, and grain and things for the small and large animals. However, there has to be, as he said, a place to to store that and it really needs to be climate controlled or you will get the rat problem, the rodent problem, but the food will actually spoil very quickly, especially in conditions uh, where there's a lot of flooding and, and, you know, just where there's not climate control. Um, another aspect is people are so well meaning and, and those thoughts and, you know, those urgent messages that people need to hear of, um, of great comfort are, are wonderful, but all the stuff that comes along with it then needs to, to be sorted and you don't know what's in the boxes and it, it ties up personnel as well. So um, I know it, it sounds like a cold statement to say, please just send money, but that's truly what needs to happen. Um, as far as who to donate to, I can't even give a list. However, I would say find out who's in charge of the response and um, give to those organizations that um, have that reputation um, and that are engaged in the actual response. And, and a lot of times just giving locally, you know, if it's within your own, um, you know, your own community to give locally in that, in that way. I know a lot of communities have memorandums of understanding with some of the larger um, national groups, and those are wonderful organizations to help support. And I'm, if I start listing them, I'm going to miss people, so I'm not going to do that. Okay. Um, Dr. McConaughey, our next question is from you, and it's from Diana in Camas, Washington. Uh, Camas, Washington is located near the Eagle Creek fire that's going down the Columbia Gorge. It's where a lot of the smoke in my area is coming from. Uh, she wants to know if a three-day supply um, a food applies to our horses and then how do you figure out how much is three days worth and how do you store it especially if you need to possibly evacuate like she might okay another great question and again it's just going to depend on what resources that community has and what sort of networking is able to happen in that neighborhood community or you know that farming community or horse community, it, it's really a tough, um, it's tough to put a number on it. Um, we're, we say now three to seven days, and, and I'm seeing more like seven to 10 days, uh, you know, of, of that sort of, you know, those sorts of supplies. So if you have space to store it, um, you know, just stay stocked up as, as much as you can. Um, and they really just need hay and water. I know the whole feed thing, but, you know, the hay is what's going to, what's going to be the most important item along with fresh water and trying to, to keep it, um, you know, a good source of fresh water uh, is important. Um, there was a question about on that one, how to store, how to store it. We'll just try to store it where it doesn't get wet or, or contaminated in any way and, and work with the net, you know, network with your, your neighbors uh, to work together on those sorts of things. 
Dr. Davis, our next question is for you, and it's from Kay, who sent in her email via email. She wants to know, where is the safest place for your horse during a thunderstorm with profuse lightning? Oh, my gosh. Um, mm -hmm. Not out in an open field. No. Um, you're, you're better off um, in some sort of protected area where you have... Um, you have uh, something that is going to take the uh, take the lightning if it does come very close um, in the Midwest. Uh, you know the barns that we used to have in Iowa and so forth all had their um, lightning rods on the on the top of the building and that sort of thing. Um, being in an area where lightning is more likely to hit that then a lone horse standing out in a field would probably be your best bet. But I don't really know if I've got recommendations beyond that, unfortunately. Okay. And in my area, because we get these big lightning strikes too, and the secondary problem with that are the wildfires that start from the lightning strikes. Sure. Um, so I think that that's something for people to be aware of. We had a, a big lightning storm, uh, thunderstorm, not too long ago and had a, a wildfire started uh, about two or three miles from, from my neighborhood. And, and it got stamped out really quickly because people were really quick to report it. Um, but that, that's another concern with, with those lightning storms. I, I like our listener, uh, just never know quite what the right thing to do is with those. Um, our next question is for Dr. McConaughey. It's from Kathy in California. And Kathy wants to know if it's true that it's safest to leave a, a horse out in the open during a strong windstorm. Um, I would I would give the same answer as, as Dr. Davis did on the lightning. I think the safest thing is to have them in a, a sturdy shelter of some sort, um, a sturdy barn or areas because flying debris um, is really, can be really dangerous. So, um, you know, if you don't, you know, if you only have pastures, then that's gonna be another situation. Um, but trying to put them in an area of the pasture, say if there is a hill to try to protect them from say straight line winds. But again, there's not a really good answer for that either. Dr. McConaughey, in these areas that have had hurricane force winds, I, I'm curious about the ag buildings. Uh, do certain ag buildings seem to fare better, ones that are, have more engineering um, than others? Is is there any rhyme or reason to, to the barns that stay standing? Um, I think the ones that have really sturdy roofs and, of course, you know, the more expensive ones that have that um, are going to be um, your safest bet. For that but um, you know then you have the hurricane with the storm surge is probably the most dangerous aspect of that and and just truly getting the animals and evacuated out of those locations is what's recommended um, okay. you know leaving them in those high-risk areas is is just not it's not a good thing it won't have a, a good outcome Dr. Davis, our, our next uh, question is for you. It's from Deborah, who's in Los Angeles, wants to know if I have to shelter in place during a wildfire, how do I minimize the amount of smoke my horses breathe in? Mm, um, well, if, if, you, if you live in an area, you know, like Southern California, of course, uh, which is prone to that kind of wildfire coming close to places where people, people keep horses, uh, having 
a lot of defensive space around your your property is probably the best thing that you can possibly do you know other than is uh like i said just evacuating you know before the the air quality becomes an issue horses have an enormously robust filtering system in their nose um and they're fairly resistant to short periods of time where you have poor air quality now i'm not saying smoke inhalation isn't a problem but smoke inhalation is what you get in a stable fire or when a, a an animal, a horse is right in the middle of the fire. If you can keep the fire far enough away so that all you're getting is particulate matter in the air and a smoky smell and that kind of stuff, it, for a period of several days to a week, that isn't going to hurt a horse very badly. Now, uh, in our area, we had about three weeks of um, of unhealthy levels of smoke uh, in the air uh -huh. and and our local veterinarians were recommending uh, not riding is that the the same recommendations that you make in California yeah is to not, not I, ride? I, would, I would say yeah I would say that'd be true because what happens with with riding and exercise you increase airflow which you know sucks in more particulate matter and smoke particles and that kind of stuff so yeah certainly restricting exercise would make sense and Dr. Davis, we have another question from you. This is the one's from Beverly in Louisiana. She wants to know what is the best way to attach visible ID to a horse in the event of a disaster, and why would that be important? Well, if certainly if it's a, a disaster where you're not the person that's doing the evacuation or the animal has to go to a shelter without a known owner, I mean, that's absolutely critical. I mean, uh, having animals in shelters where the owner is not known is a real, real big problem. Um, there are all kinds of ingenious methods. Um, uh, you know, these these collars that they put on the necks of, of broodmares is one possibility. Uh, another method is to uh, take a pair of uh, clippers with number 40 blade on it and clip your name and phone number in the hair on the side of the horse's neck. I mean, the hair is going to grow back, but that uh, th that is a um, uh, a marker that won't get lost. Uh, another possibility in a in a, in a pinch is to get some good sticky duct tape or uh, elasticon bandage, um, put it on your horse's mane, and write your name and phone number on it with uh, with a sharpie. And Dr. McConico, do you have any any other thoughts on IDing horses? Um, and that, and I'm curious, when you've been in these disaster situations, how uh, frequently does it happen that horses are separated from their owners? It happens a lot. I'm sure both Florida and Texas are right in the midst of dealing with that right now in the fire, you know, the folks in the fire areas. Um, I mean, just some other things that we've seen and that seem to work. Um, ones that you can actually see from a helicopter when you can see somebody's cell phone to try to identify so you don't have to get, you know, ones that you can't access from the road. So we actually have used spray paint on the horse and big, you know, big letters and a cell sure. phone number that's out, outside of the disaster area. Um, so a, a family member or friend that's a contact outside because, you know, the cell phone lines get jammed and um, maybe the owner's in a shelter somewhere 
So um, we would, that, that's just another option. There's all sorts of different ways, you know, carving something into their foot, but then, well, not their foot, but their hoof. And then, you, you know, it's, it's difficult when they're in the mud to, to see those. So th this way, it's something big that you can see. And again, over a few, you know, a few weeks, that's going to go, it's going to uh, rub off or whatever. And the, and the idea with the, um, the clippers works really well. It's, you know, but it's, it takes a little while to do it. I don't know if you've actually tried to put a phone number with clippers um, in where you can actually read it. It's a little challenging, but hey, um, you know, if you've got a good set of clippers that'll work, then, <laughs> then that's great. Yeah. So Dr. McConaughey, when these horses are separated from their humans and you go to try to find or collect your horse, are there any procedures that are in place to make sure that the, the right horse is matched back up with the correct owner? Um, yeah, well, there we try to have those in place. And in Louisiana, we have mandatory microchipping, and that helped us tremendously uh, in Katrina, after Katrina. Um, and that what we were able to, to match those up eventually. Of course, those had to be matched up with the Coggins papers um, at the state level. So it wasn't like you could log in somewhere and type in the in the chip number, but um, if those animals are registered along with having the chip, that's that's really um, probably the best way. But most of the time, the owners need to have ID of some sort on their animal, uh, um, such as pictures and their Coggins papers. You know, the passport Coggins papers work really well now. That's all electronically stored. Um, and then um, you know, just having as much information as you can on on your animal. But, you know, that I can say firsthand last year in the flood in Baton Rouge area, um, we had several owners claiming that, you know, this was their animal. And at some time, you know, in the history, they each owned the animal. <laughs> so um, oh, whoever had oh the most up-to-date up information. Yeah. So, Dr. Davis, yeah. What, what are your experiences with putting horses back, back with their owners? Microchip everything. I mean, I'm serious. That's I, I'm serious. There's no reason to not have. I mean, all my horses, all my donkeys are 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 microchipped, and and you just have to do that. And that's basically the solution when it all shakes out. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down because mine are not microchipped. <laughs> so yeah, them. I'm gonna put that on my to-do list. Um, I'm sure there's lots of people out listening who who are gonna do the same. Um, can actually, Dr. Davis, can you explain a little bit about how a horse is microchipped? Um, and how an owner. Oh, it's, an it's it's an extraordinarily simple procedure. It's um, you know doesn't take you know really any kind of medication or sedation or anything like that and we even uh microchip uh horses where we do uh research and so forth in um, places like nicaragua where these horses have really not been handled very much and it's easy to do it's just a it's a it's a tiny little piece of of uh, of, of metal that emits a you know micro signal um and it's placed um right uh kind of under the main in the uh nuchal ligament which is a large ligament that, that runs along the top of the horse's neck uh you just stick uh stick a needle in there and and uh press a little plunger the microchip comes out they heal up like a million bucks and and it's really simple and inexpensive to do 
Do you brands help at all, Dr. Davis, or is it too hard to, to track who they belong to? I'm thinking of my friends who has a, a gelding that has four different brands on him, so he might have one of those situations with four different people claiming him. Well, I would, you know, something like that. I mean, what you would need to do is have a record of the fact that that horse has these brands on it, and, and frankly, uh, taking a picture of the horse and the brands would be would be ideal. Um, I mean, if it has four different brands on it, that is going to kind of identify the horse too. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so, so I, I, that that would be the way to do it. Just make sure you have a record. Dr. McConico, the next question is for you, and we actually got several questions about halters. Uh, this one in particular is from Margaret in Elk Grove, California. She wants to know what kind of halter is best to use when sheltering in place, and I'm just going to assume from her location that she's actually talking about because of fires. Um, well, we, we would recommend um, a type of halter that's called like a breakaway halter. So it has, because um, you know the nylon halters, they're tough and that's where horses will get injured, um, you know, if it, you know, under pressure, if it catches on something. And so there are halters that have like a leather strap that's, um, you know, not woven, but that's, uh, that's going to break under pressure or even Velcro. And you can even make your own nylon halters into a breakaway halter by using Velcro or, or tie it with some, secure it with something. Um, of course, they may lose a halter, you know, along the way. Um, and so having the ID on them is going to be really important that's on their body. Um, but that's probably the safest thing because many animals will get hung or stuck, you know, with a halter. Um, is there, you know, out in the, you know, in, in a disaster situation. Um, Dr. Davis, the next question is for you. It's from Star in Bedford, uh, Ohio, and she wants to know if you have any specific suggestions for horse owners who board their horses and may not have full control over the animal during a disaster. Well, microchip it. Sorry to sorry to harp on that subject, but you know that that, that would be a start. The other thing would be, um, and I have boarded my own horses. It, it, at uh, places, I would make sure that I, I, I would inquire of the person that, that I'm boarding the horse at, what how they would handle a disaster, what their plan is for anything from a stable fire to a flood, uh, to any of that sort of thing. And um, uh, make sure that they have multiple phone numbers where they could reach you in an emergency. And, and again, kind of work with them to make sure that, that there is some kind of a plan for disaster. So, Dr. Davis, I um, used to work at a therapeutic riding center, and as part of our accreditation process, we had to have a disaster plan in place and an evacuation plan, and we had to run drills with that, like how, how we could get enough trailers on the property to get the horses out in a certain amount of time. Um, that's not something that when I've been at boarding facilities, I've ever heard anyone talk about. Is it the facility owner's responsibility to to evacuate the horse, or is it the horse owner's responsibility to evacuate it's the, the horse, horse? It's the horse owner's responsibility, as 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 far as I know. Now, I I guess I, you know, I I don't know whether or not there are different laws in different states, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are different laws in different localities within states. Um, I will say that I know of counties in California 
where basically the boarding stables have gotten together, developed a plan similar to the one that you were dis uh, discussed with the therapeutic writing group, um, had people on call for transport, have an agreement for a place to which they would transport the horses, and the transporters all had liability coverage as well. And that takes a little bit of effort, but you know, uh, we as equine professionals have a little bit of an obligation to our community to make sure that that sort of thing is available. I so, think in Louisiana, let me just add to that real yeah. quick. Um, in Louisiana, I know there are a lot of boarding facilities that have that written in their agreements, their border agreements, and and they're not all the same. They, you know, sometimes it's the horse owner, sometimes it's the the boarding facility. But it is something I think super important for people to figure out what what is the plan. You know, where can they where can they help with that? Yeah. So. As vets, what are your recommendations to people who have more horses than they have horse trailer space? How do you triage and make the decisions on which horses get out first or how to get the other horses out? Um, Dr. Davis, do you want to start? Um, yeah, I, again, a, a, a tough question. Um, I mean, I almost have that problem myself. Um, once again, I think this speaks to the importance of community planning for disasters and you know we're all horse people and cowboys and whatnot but we want to be able to take care of ourselves and um you know do things our way and um veterinarians as a profession uh, particularly those of my older generation are particularly bad in that that sense but you know it's time that we kind of got together and got with our own local communities so that if Russell Ranch down the road from me boarding 50 horses and just to pick a number there's there's five horse trailers there um, other people in the community need to be willing to step up to help them out because at some point um, Allison there at, at Russell Ranch may be the person that you're sending your horses to when they need to be sheltered and um, I, I, th I think that's the solution to that problem is, is, is a community plan and a realization that these things are going to happen and we ought to be prepared for them. Dr. McConico, did you have anything to add? Um, I, I mean, I just think the message is community planning and working together. Um, the other thing is if it's a, say it's a smaller farm, um, there's not a community and you're talking a family situation and you have a two horse trailer and four horses, um, during when the disaster is actually happening and as you're trying to evacuate, that's not the time to decide. The time to decide is is in between the disasters. Um, you know, decide who gets to go first and then, you know, basically whoever can load the quickest is going to get to go. So, um, you know, just have those conversations with your family and try to get that sorted out ahead of time. Yeah. And, and yeah. have a plan about where you're going to go to as well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and where you need to go, I'm guessing, just depends on what kind of disasters are prevalent in your area. Is that I know in my area with wildfire, I have um, a friend who lives on the opposite end of town away from the kind of forest that I live in. She lives near a different kind of forest, and so 
um, I we would evacuate to each other's properties first. Um, but what about places like in Louisiana with hurricanes? How far do you have to go to evacuate safely, Dr. McConaughey? Well, that's a great question. And that, that actually happened to me personally with my daughter's horse back in Gustav. And so Gustav was followed by Ike. Um, and we actually evacuated to where Ike went in, not knowing Ike was going there. So um, luckily, we, we were fine. But yeah, you got to go north if there's a hurricane. Well, at least from our state. Um, and usually, you know, the I-10 corridor, you got to go away. You got to go up to I-20. And so we have designated shelters along there. And I think people in Louisiana have been through it so many times they kind of have their people now they have their partner their partners so you, you know you said your friend 10 miles away they probably have the 10 mile friend the 50 mile friend the 100 mile friend the, you know depending on the seriousness of of the um the hazard that's happening or going to happen yeah so dr mcconaughey in these evacuation situations you know i know in veterinary medicine and horse management, we're always talking about biosecurity and quarantines. Does all of that just kind of go out the window when you're trying to get horses to safety? Um, well, it depends. If it's a if it's a group of people that <laughs> that have that concern, so let's let's pick um, Coggins testing. You know, and people say, well, you're not going to be able to bring your horse to my facility unless they have a negative Coggins test. Um, well, you know, that all depends. A lot of times they'll throw those out the window and, but then they need to, if it's going to be shelter situation for uh, weeks or, you know, several weeks at a time, then those horses do need to get a Coggins test because the risk goes up the longer they're all together um, and they're, you know, untested potential reservoirs. So um, I would say asking me, somebody that does internal medicine and biosecurity, um, I try to keep that in mind and help help advise and, and help people keep the animals separated that are sick once they get to a shelter. Um, you know, the ones that have snotty noses and the fevers and the diarrhea, those guys go this down this aisle and have lots of PPE and then the other, you know, personal protective gloves and, and things and um, then the others can go the other way. And then they need to all have physical exams eventually. So, you know, it depends on the urgency really. Um, and the situation eventually the biosecurity gets handled and gets taken care of. Uh, we have a question from our live audience. Gab is listening and and Gab wants to know, Dr. Davis, what equipment or who has the equipment necessary to read microchips? Um, I would say most small animal practices do now. I would think of virtually all animal control. Um, offices, you know, county animal control would have uh, microchip readers. And um, although not all equine veterinarians might have them, I would think that most referral centers, in other words, places where horses get hospitalized and, you know, might get more sophisticated surgery and diagnostics, that they would have those available. Um, and, and, uh, and once again, if your county animal control for some reason does not, it might be the sort of thing that the local 4-H club or some other group might get together and take up a collection and spend 50 bucks on a microchip reader. Dr. Davis and, and Dr. McConaughey, I think this is a question that uh, you, you both might 
have responses to. Uh, but Eric is in Park City, Utah, and Eric uh, is in the veterinary profession and wants to know as an educator, how can he better improve his disaster planning seminars that he gives to horse owners? Um, Dr. Uh, McConaughey? Yeah, I can take that one. Um, it, I guess the the thing that has seemed to work the best for us is to get together with the community again um, and work through actual scenarios and and work through a worksheet of you know what are the resources in your community. Um, I think it's really important to include the um, the the animal control officers and or the sheriff's department, whoever is the designated in, you know, in charge of animals in a, in a community. So they would come into the role, they, they play a role in emergency management and they're the ones that can really help facilitate and help work with the first responders. Um, and, and they really, it, it's just a matter of networking and pulling it all together. Um, the other thing that's helped is that, you know, make it fun, involve, the kids, they make great um, high school projects, like for FFA, kids in 4-H, pony clubs, um, to put these kind of uh, seminars together, bring their parents, the kids get excited about what's our plan and kind of gets a little enthusiasm into the family and, and they can usually um, come up with some really helpful uh, planning situations to, to build community capacity and build community resilience. Are there any resources for education materials or seminar materials, uh, either from the universities or extension agencies that you could recommend? Um, well, I can recommend the AAP's website. Um, they have some really great, like the, they have an evacuation kit. They have that whole list. They've got a lot of resources there. Um, many of the, in fact, I think UC Davis is the one that submitted that because I was just looking at that earlier today. Um, it's just a one-page bullet point list that's really handy and quick, um, uh, quick reference. And yeah, most of the ag centers in the different, um, you know, the, the different universities, the land-grant institutions and the, the ag agents, um, there's a whole lot of information available. The, the publication coming out of the AVMA, Saving the Whole Family, that's a really great resource as well. Um, and those are online. Um, you can print your own. You can customize it for your community. Um, so yeah, there's a, there are a lot of, of resources available. And Dr. Davis, do you have any resources there in California for, for people on the West Coast? Uh, yeah, the, um, the uh, Center for Equine Health here at UC Davis has uh, did a uh, pamphlet uh, about two years ago now that that is available and if somebody wanted to either contact the center for equine health or contact uh, me at the international animal welfare training institute we could get them that information i suspect it's online um but i'm not 100 percent sure of that um the other thing that uh I, i'd also um suggest is um there is going to be a uh, symposium on uh, disaster preparedness and animals, um, not entirely skewed to large animals, but to some extent, uh, it's going to be kind of heavy on that. Here in October at the, at the University of California, Davis, and there will be proceedings um, 
as a result of that meeting. So you might just watch the uh, UC Davis website for the availability of that. And Dr. McConaughey, our next question is for you. It's from Terry in New Mexico. And Terry wants to know, what if I cannot get my horse to load in the trailer during an evacuation? Um, that's a tough one. It happens a lot. And um, it basically means that horse is going to get left behind. And so definitely microchip the horse. Have that, you know, there's another uh, tip for that. Uh, get him microchipped and then leave him in a, in an area where they have access to hay and fresh water, um, if they, you know, if if you can have an area where they can stay under in a sheltered environment, um, that's probably the best. But you don't want to lock them in a stall. We had so many horses drown in their stalls um, after Katrina, and I know Texas is dealing with that. Obviously, Florida probably too. Um, we we hope we've learned our lessons from that. But I guess until you see it firsthand, um, it, it's it's one a lot of people just don't think about. So, but leaving those provisions, um, if if there are people that are going to stay in the area and you're evacuating, if you can let your neighbor know, some some people just absolutely refuse to leave. And heck, if they're going to stay back, maybe they could look in on your horse for you. Yeah, and and if 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 I if you will allow me a brief pet peeve, um, if there's a single thing that you're going to do to protect your horse in the disaster, that is to get them good at loading. And I know that that isn't something that happens overnight. I know that it can be difficult. I know that horses can develop phobias and problems with loading. But um, any horse I have, when I open the back of a trailer and point at the trailer, they will walk in that trailer. And I don't use force. I don't use coercion. I don't use pain. I don't use any of that kind of stuff. You just spend time at it, and they'll all learn how to do it. And if there's one thing you can do for your horse, that's probably the most important. And I would also add that have other people load your horse too. Mm -hmm. So the old brownie, you know, is afraid of man, you know, or, or something. And I mean, that's fine, but that doesn't get you very far in a disaster. So go find some guy to load brownie a bunch of times till brownie realizes that it's not going to hurt him. Okay. It's pretty simple, but, but it, that is, that is crucially important. And uh, I, I put I put time in with my animals to make sure that they that they do that. Oh. What recommendations do you have for owners who might be under stress and their horse that usually loads isn't going to? <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, I I got a great story about that myself, but but I I won't abuse you with it. But that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. That's abs you know that is so true. I I mean, and I've had horses that loaded great until I was in a hurry or there was some problem and they're like, eh, you know, I don't like this. There's something bad going on here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, again, as somebody who's, uh, you know, I, I don't know very much, but I spent a lot of time around horses in my 69 years. Um, sometimes it's a good idea when you feel stressed and you're concerned and everything like that to just stop no matter what else is going on take a deep breath, um, uh, say your favorite mantra or whatever it is, and just calm yourself down before you get anywhere near the horse. You know, I, I mean, that sounds silly, but that's worked for me. Um, while you guys have been responding to questions, uh, my backup team has been 
posting some links. We actually at the horse partnered with UC Davis uh, a few years ago to create a natural disaster planning uh, interactive uh, page on our website and that URL has been posted if you want to check that out if you're listening. Uh, it has some uh, test questions that kind of take you through the process thinking through uh, evacuating your horse. Um, our next question is for Dr. Davis. Anne is in Pennsylvania and Anne's question is what do you do if you don't have a trailer? We've talked about community resources. What recommendations do you have for Anne? Um, and I guess it would depend a little. I mean obviously not to we've sort of gone over the community resources thing and I mean I think that's critical. Um, not only who's going to haul it, but where it's going to go. But if that's not, for some reason, absolutely not available, um, then, then then it depends a little bit on what sort of um, disaster you may be facing. And it also should affect your willingness to evacuate early. So if you're going to have to lead that horse or you're going to have to find a place of safety if there's a flood or a fire, you're going to have to just be that much more sensitive and you're going to have to accept the fact that you're probably going to move your horse with a false alarm every so often. Um, there's, there's no alarm as good as a false alarm. I love false alarms. But I, I think that would be, you know, that, I think that would be your, uh, I, I think that'd be your option. Yeah, and I think it's important even if you don't have a truck and trailer that you learn how to drive a truck and trailer. Um, I have, oh, that's a good point. yeah, I have friends who rely on me, you know, to transport their horses to trail ride or go to, you know, shows or whatever. Um, and I always try to encourage them to at least uh, get in the driver's seat so we can go around some of the country roads. Um, Mostly, so if something happens to me while we're trail riding, uh, I know they can <laughs> drive me to the hospital. But I, um, I recently also my friend who I um, have kind of this disaster plan with, um, I drove her truck and I hadn't realized it was a, a stick. And so I can drive a manual transmission, but I think that it, it's always good to be prepared in those situations uh, so that we can uh, deal with them if, if they come up. So. Um, anyway, just just a few few tips uh, from the horse owner side. Um, Dr. McConico, we have uh, a question for you. It's from Julia in Stillwater, Minnesota, and she wants to know if you could address the effects of standing water or standing in water for long periods of times for horses. What happens to the hooves, legs, and skin if our horses are in flooded areas? Um, well, we, we've seen a lot of that, and I've seen a whole lot of pictures floating around on the internet. Um, we had a lot from the flood from last year in Baton Rouge, and, and of course, we've seen it for years and years. It's not something new. We just, I think, have more um, social networking, so we see these things. And, and what, basically what it happens is the skin becomes macerated, truly macerated, um, almost like a, a person with a bed sore. Um, so they, it's, it's a wet, you know, the skin gets wet, those very, those several layers of the skin, um, that provide protection under normal circumstances, um, gets, um, edematous, gets full of fluid. And then parts of that, you know, it, it loses blood supply. They, that skin will flake off. Um, and then sometimes deep, um, deep ulceration will happen. 
and um, they will get infections, you know, all that flood water and the floodwaters have so many things in it that are nasty, the sewer, the, you know, the, the organisms that are out there, the chemicals um, in the environment. And so um, that on top of uh, skin without any barrier, they become infected. They can get um, deep skin infections. Um, the hooves, if they lose blood supply, you know, if those vessels get um, infected and they lose blood supply and get infection in their feet, they can founder or get laminitis. Um, so we, we see that every year. And some horses can stand in water uh, for several days and they come out, you, you bathe them, get that, all that stuff off of them and they do fine. But other horses, even 12 to 24 hours of standing in it, they've got that macerated um, skin, that water line that you see uh, on these guys. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, they can lose their life over it. Uh, we have another resource for our listeners that just got posted uh, in the chat box. Uh, if you're listening to us online, uh, we've done editor's picks, our top 10 resources for disaster planning. If you're listening and not on the computer, you can go to thehorse.com later. Uh, thehorse.com slash 33. 474 will get you to to that resource article. Dr. Davis, the next question is for you. It's from Linda in Midland, North Carolina. Uh, Linda is asking, what is the best way to permanently identify your animals? And actually, I think we've answered that. Uh, do you want to give another plug for, for microchipping? I'll give another plug for microchipping. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think that, I think it absolutely is. Okay. Uh, Dr. McConico, our next question is from Gail, who's in Ontario, Canada. And Gail wants to know what you would recommend having in your quote-unquote evacuation kit for your horse. Um, well, again, the, the things that you're posting currently are, are great resources. And um, I guess one of the first things is know where you're going. So have, you know, have a a resource where you're going to be taking your animal, have your first aid kit, your your hay and water, halter lead rope for each horse, um, bucket. Uh, you know, just you can just go down that list. I guess for people, I I say basically you need fuel for you, your your horse and your vehicle, um, and those are the you know having batteries and and energy. You need to ha be able to see what you're doing. So. Um, having those cell phone chargers, those extra ones, and then, you know, that whole list of things uh, that can go along with what goes in a first aid kit. And um, I don't, we could talk, you know, two or three more minutes on that, but I, yeah. I think people can have those resources and um, those are great. Well, uh, Ken is in New York. He's in our live audience and he wants to know what recommendations you ha would have for medical supplies to keep on hand for your horses. Um, what what are some basic first aid things that, that someone might want to have? Um, and okay, is it a good so reason to keep your prescriptions up to date and have some in the, the cabinet? Right. So um, bandage material is always important with some sort of tape. I mean, duct tape and towels can be used in a pinch if you don't have uh, bandage material, but any of the salves, things to clean um, their legs, um, their body if they have any injuries. Um, so basically your veterinarian's phone number, a veterinarian's phone number, um, some pain meds, uh, fly spray, um, 
I guess, Eric, you can jump in here because um, I didn't make a list. Uh, that's sort of off the top of my head. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's basically it. Probably having a uh, a little bit of some sort of uh, mild disinfectant, uh, chlorhexidine or, or uh, provodone iodine. Um, uh, I'm I really like to have one of what they used to call a military compress bandage available because it, it uh, is designed for stopping significant hemorrhage. So in other words, if you have a horse that should cut its lower leg in a trailer accident or something like that. And while everything else is going on, you can put that on good and tight. You won't hurt the horse's leg and you'll stop the hemorrhage. So yeah. those, those kind of things are, are handy. Uh, it's not a bad idea to have and learn how to use a stethoscope um, and have and learn how to use a thermometer. It's probably not something you're going to use in the instant of emergency. But if when you get to the sheltering site and your horse like doesn't want to eat the next morning, you can get some very valuable information just for those two instruments. We have a, simple to use. We have another question from our live audience. Maggie would like to know if you would recommend sheltering in place or evacuating during snow and ice storms. Um, neither one of you I currently live in in cold weather areas, but do you have any experience dealing with with snow and ice? Um, Dr. Davis, I think you mentioned you spent time in the Midwest. Yeah, I, I was in Iowa State there for a while, and uh, we work with a lot of clients at the Indian Reservations in North and South Dakota. Um, they're tougher than I am. I'm not sure I could survive a winter up there, but um, generally their approach when it's successful, and they've had some bad winters, is to make sure that you have hay placed in areas where you can easily get to it to make sure that you can keep your animals fed in really severely cold weather. Where they usually get into trouble is you have cold weather, you get a little bit of a thaw, and then you get a real cold snap, and you get that, that uh, either an ice storm or, or all the snow turns to ice. And horses uh, and cattle starve to death because nobody can get feed to them. Mm -hmm. So making sure that if that should happen, the animals are in a place where you can either because you have the equipment or because they're placed close enough to the feed source that you can keep them fed. Horses have an enormous ability to withstand cold. I mean, it's pretty darn amazing mm -hmm. um, what they can deal with. But they have to be fed and they need water. Yeah, and in my area this last winter, we had a, a really rough winter and, and we had some ice where it was hard to uh, even step outside without falling sure. uh, with ice. And, and it was really hard with the horses, just really scary because it's a slip and fall stuff with them if you don't have stalls to keep them in off the ice. Um, but yeah, it just kept hay in front of them, lots of hay anytime we could um, get out there. We wore uh, yak tracks and snowshoes <laughs> to feed oh, um, yeah. so that we could get to them. And um, I just wish that there were snowshoes for the horses too, because it was really pretty scary with ice. So anyway, uh, if you're listening live and you've dealt with ice and, and snow and you have suggestions for, for the way you've 
ways you've coped with that, feel free to add that to our chat window and we can share some of those tips here before before we're done in the next few minutes. Um, Dr. Davis, our next question is for you and it's from CC in Sugarland, Texas. And CC wants to know if you have any recommendations for feeding horses during evacuations. I know that usually we don't want to change what horses are eating too quickly, but we may not have a choice if we're evacuating. Dr. Davis? Yeah, having having quality grass hay available is the, is the main thing because you can take a horse that's on like alfalfa and a high concentrate uh, diet and switch them to grass hay and they'll do and they'll do they'll do quite well. Where you get into trouble is if you go the other direction. So if I was going to have a feed stuff available, it would be well cured, decent digestibility grass hay because that's something that I can always feed to any horse and it will do okay. Um, Dr. McConico, I think our last question, we're just about to run out of time here tonight, um, but we have a question from Lori in Texas. And Lori has taken on a rescue horse from uh, Hurricane Harvey, and she wants to know what recommendations you have for treating rain rot in that horse. Okay, I guess I would have some more questions uh, for Lori in Texas, and um, mainly to find out is that a moderate, mild, or severe case, and does the is the horse a thin horse, and you know are there nutritional issues to address? But if we're just talking about rain rot, um, which is a bacterial a skin condition that causes a lot of crusting um, all over over the back, um, up on the rump, and then down the legs. Um, most of the time, if you get those crusts off by bathing them, gently bathing them uh, with like a chlorhexidine or a, a betadine shampoo, so something with a detergent in it, um, and then get those crusts off and let it dry out and then have that animal on a, a good plane of nutrition, um, sometimes it's so severe they have secondary infection um, or some other things going on that need to be uh, evaluated. So I would say um, make sure that that horse is being evaluated by a veterinarian that can then, um, you know, help. But that's sort of the routine treatment that we recommend. I know there are a lot of things on the market that people like to use, um, a lot of things with oil or mineral oil in them. And I'm not a big fan of that. I'm, I'm a bigger fan of keeping it dry but uh, um, you know good luck with that horse and, and all those horses out there that are getting some extra care these days because of that. We have a comment from Brenda in our live audience she's saying that when she is uh, dealing with ice uh, she recommends using stove ashes or manure to put on top for, for some traction. Um, this year I've actually ordered sand. I have sand because uh, it's inorganic. It, doesn't hold moisture and that way I can spread sand and over walkways um, to give give my horses a little bit of traction and myself uh, so that I can get out to feed them. Um, with that, uh, we are unfortunately out of time tonight. I want to thank Dr. Davis and Dr. McConico both for joining us and answering all of our questions. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Enjoy doing it. I want to also thank everyone who submitted questions ahead of time and those of you who listened live and submitted questions. I hope you can join us next month when we are discussing equine legal issues. Until then, from all of us here at The Horse, uh, stay safe and have a great night.